0: What's going on guys? Welcome to the Stack Strength Podcast. I'm your host as always, Daniel DeBrock, and today we've got a special guest, Dr. Stuart McGill. So Stuart, th- first off, thank you so much for jumping on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to actually connect face-to-face. I've, I've seen a lot of your work. I've followed you for a long time. So it's really amazing to actually have you on the podcast. Can you give a little bit of a background uh, of yourself and some of the work that you've done for those who maybe aren't familiar with you and, and what you've been doing?
1: Well, uh, good morning to you, first of all, Daniel, and uh, thanks for that. I uh, was a professor for 32 years, I guess, at the University of Waterloo. And uh, when I started, I only asked one question, and that was, how does the spine work? And it was, out of that simple question, uh, clinicians, coaches, Uh, Athletic groups would ask me to come and speak to them about our recent findings on how the spine works and becomes injured, etc. And then they would say to me, well, would you see an injured athlete for us or or, or one of our patients? And I would say, well, not really. I'm not a clinician. And uh, they said, well, that's all right. Our medical staff will be with you. And uh, to make a long story short, I became an accidental clinician. About uh, 25 years ago when I was asked to start the experimental research clinic uh, at the University and uh, since that time I've uh, continued leading the research team and uh, running the clinic I I retired a few years ago but I must say it was uh, such a wonderful synergy because we're about the only program that I know of where we listened to the coaches and the therapists, and the athletes, asking questions. And when we couldn't answer their question, we just found our next research question to do in the uh, laboratory. So it was a wonderful symbiosis between the clinic, uh, consulting with uh, athletes on pain and performance, and uh, the uh, the science.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's so great that you have that sort of um collaborative effect, right? Where I've always noticed that, you know, specifically, I guess, talking from like a coaching standpoint, there are people who are really heavily invested in research and then there are people who are really heavily invested in like the training side of things. And I think that both sides require like that integration for you to actually get the most out of it. And so it's, it's really cool. You had that just within your clinic because the, the level of utility just goes up exponentially. Um, so I guess probably the the first place to get started is uh, talking a little bit about the, the biomedical model and the biopsychosocial model, because I'd say probably in the last ten years or so it's really started to become a lot more um, prominent in in the coaching sphere, and I think with a lot of things you know there's this kind of overcorrection, where I literally remember hearing coaches and some clinicians even saying that there is no relationship between technique and injury, and I'm just like. Come on, like, that, that's just so, like, everyone knows that that's not true, right? But then at the same time, I think there are some aspects of the biosexual social model that, that legitimately are really, like, important, right? Um, and so I was wondering if you would kind of uh, break down what both of those are and then talk a lot, or sorry, talk a little bit about, I guess, the strengths and weaknesses of both sides of things and, and how you've maybe incorporated both or what you do now in your own practice, if, if it's different at all.
1: Okay, well, uh, I might be a little bit of an oddball on this in that my brain doesn't think along those lines of separation. Uh, I've already explained that I started as a scientist and became this accidental uh, clinician. When the dean asked me to start the experimental research clinic to see patients, that was about 25 years ago, I started out with two-hour appointments to see patients. I didn't start coming through a medical model where you have a 10-minute appointment and uh, you know either refer the person on or, or give them uh, something specific in, in, in terms of an intervention. What we said was we're starting from scratch on this, The initial visit is an information gathering session, so what's important for us to understand why that person has back pain, why they've already been to 10 different clinical uh, experiences and they've failed and now they're coming to us, we have to be different. So right at the very outset, we tried to design an interview to extract as much information that we could about the pain patterns, doing pattern recognition, for, uh, and linking them to the different subcategories of pain uh, that involved assessing their neurology, their anatomy, their, their biomechanics, uh, their pain sensitivity and pain triggers, their learning style, how are we going to coach them, their attention span. All of these things. Daniel after uh, just over a year of doing that we increased the length of that original interview to three hours. So you see I never had any separation in my mind between biomechanics or psychosocial milieu or anything. It was always all uh, important to us. So there uh, was a start Um, But I should say, we also worked very hard to come up with specific tests to determine and probe their specific pain triggers. A very simple example might be you have two patients. One comes in and says, when I sit on a floppy couch or work at a computer, I get back pain. But I can stand up and go for a walk and it cures me. And in fact, I can even deadlift 200 kilos and I feel pretty good but sitting at a computer is very difficult but the other person probably a little bit older says you know when I go for a short work walk uh, I get radiating symptoms and when I sit down they go away in other words they're polar opposites mm-hmm. so we learned that almost all back pain starts with a trigger the predisposition of people for certain types of pain triggers and stress concentrations etc came from their parents. So you can say genetics loads the gun, exposure to different types of stressors result in specific stress concentrations, so the exposure pulls the trigger and the psychosocial milieu around that determines how they uh, manifest with that pain. Do are, are they an exercise addict? So you have to slow them down. Or are they a, basically a, a movement adverse kind of personality and they need encouragement to move? What specific movements create the stresses that cause their specific pains and, and what ones don't? So, you know. Uh, it might might be a volume of training issue it might be a programming where you have a power lifter who thinks doing yoga is beneficial not realizing that they compete for the adaptive processes uh, needed to uh, be good at one and not the other so I mean I can go on and on with this but uh, I hope that gives you uh, an appreciation but at the end of the day when a person comes in and they say I have back pain and then we start probing them with different activities different motions different loads and different postures we can change the pain we can either make it worse or we can make it better almost always if a motion posture or load fails to change their back pain they don't have mechanical back pain and then we send them off for uh, some rigorous tests and in that way we found cancerous tumors Uh, systemic disease like Lyme disease, uh, aortic aneurysm, uh, lung embolism, all of these things, or or really gross anatomic anomalies. (laughs) We had this one young uh, rackets player who who was ranked, I think, number two in their country, and uh, I touched their back, and they said, oh, no clinician has ever touched my back before, And I felt this large indent down the middle of their thoracic spine. I couldn't feel any spinous processes. So uh, I then looked at the uh, MRIs. They were missing uh, spinous processes down half of their thoracic spine. And you could feel that the, the, the loss of muscle attachments. In other words, they had a very special form of spina bifida that occurred in, in the middle of their spine. <laughs> and now you can see imaging was very, very important for that person. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a start to the story anyway. Uh, it's, it's all important. But uh, there are groups who don't think uh, mechanics uh, or the form of... of uh, how a person might lift or load matters and uh, what I would suggest uh, is uh, uh, how many athletes did they rehabilitate back from injury to compete at the last Olympics and if the answer is zero, I'm not going to listen to them. If it's 40, I'll listen.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And so <clears throat> you said a couple of things that I'd I'd like to explore a little bit more. The first was around stress concentrations, um, and so I was wondering if you could kind of go into that a little bit more, uh, if you mean that like physical stress, psychological stress, uh, as well as um, differentiating between, you mentioned kind of a pain trigger, and if there are certain tests that maybe they don't, um, they don't check off those boxes, you know to refer them out, like if you could kind of give some examples of that as well.
1: Right. Okay. Very early on, we would uh, use very sophisticated, very anatomically accurate, physiologically fidelic computer models of people's spines. We would take MRIs of their spines, serially stack them, and recreate their spine in the computer. Then we would ask them to bend. Well, our instrumentation would reconstruct that bending motion. Uh, of their spine. So we could measure loads in the passive tissues like the discs in bending, stressed ligaments, and things like that. Then we used electromyography to measure the activation levels of their muscles and we converted those to force. So we were able to create stress maps throughout the body. We found very early that the stress concentration was where the pain usually originated or was very much part. Uh, of the pathway. Uh, we've done many experiments since. Uh, I can give you one for example where uh, whiplash uh, patients were all one year post whiplash and the medical profession had declared them uh, pain magnifiers. They said well whiplash uh, there's nothing wrong with your MRI images which remember is a static picture and uh, those tissues should have healed it's uh, longer than 12 weeks tissues heal within 12 weeks but if the public only knew the data that they were using for tissue healing was rodent muscle rat muscle which does heal quite quickly nowhere near like if you have a disc in your cervical spine or lumbar spine you get a stress concentration and it flattens a little bit it's like letting air out of your car tire you now have a a micro movement at the uh, joint so uh, I can just quickly show you what I I mean by that there is a uh, pelvis and lumbar spine this disc is normal this disc is normal but this one has been Damaged, overloaded with a stress concentration. It's lost a little bit of height, so watch what happens. I'm going to apply a general twisting torque and you see the majority of the motion is occurring at the joint that's lost its stiffness. So those stress concentrations trigger pain. You can see the facet joints working at the level where it's now lost stiffness or in true sense it is unstable you perturb a load and that's where the majority of the uh, motion occurs. It's those micro movements that correspond one-to-one with specific pain patterns. The person might lie in bed for example when they're laying in bed that soft joint kinks off just a little bit and they'll wake up and they say oh I've got a toothache in my back and I said well yeah but before you get up I want you to push your right leg towards the foot of the bed oh, that took away my toothache. Yes, we realigned that micro-movement. So, you know, we we get a one-to-one with the stress concentration and their specific pain trigger. And that pain trigger, uh, the character of it is, it moves around. They might say, you know, in the morning I had low back pain on my right side, later on in the day my left big toe fell asleep, etc. So these are all, if you know how to interpret them, Uh, pain patterns consistent with very very specific uh, pain triggers then we do specific tests for example a prone instability test where the clinician probes one kilo on every spinous process and can locate where the uh, pain sensitivity is uh, or we can see it uh, going back to the whiplash uh, people What we did with them was we watched their necks going through a range of motion under video fluoroscopy, which is a real-time moving x-ray. It's dynamic. It's not like an MRI. And we would watch their vertebra rotate, and then their neck would clunk like this. And it usually happens somewhere in the mid-range, and they would, ugh, there's the pain, and then they would work through it. Interestingly enough for them, going to end range was stabilizing. Because it locked the joint in an end range uh, stop to uh, to motion, so uh, we were able to show uh, legally in in uh, because uh, there were some clinicians who were saying, "Well, these patients are faking it; they don't have um, lingering uh, pain." Uh, but we couldn't measure the pain, but we could certainly measure their report of pain corresponded hundred percent with that shearing clunk uh, in their back well now the question was what to do about it well if the mechanism was a loss of controlling stiffness we now have to add some controlling stiffness pull your chin back touch your teeth lightly to the roof of your mouth push your tongue hard to the roof of the mouth behind the front teeth you'll feel those muscles come on now grimace down with your face sounds funny but now go through the range of motion Hmm. my pain is gone in other words i gave them a power lifters neck (laughs) and it stiffened out the micro movements so when people say oh uh lifting form doesn't matter for power lifting i got a sore neck it just sort of happens you're magnifying your pain I I don't think they're uh, well
0: educated. Mm. No, I'm really glad that you actually brought that up because that's one thing I've seen a lot of people reference as well. That's something, to be honest, I've referenced in the past as well in in sort of trying to parse out the details because I've seen research that has shown on MRIs, you know, you get like 33.33% of individuals who are asymptomatic present with some sort of disc herniation or protrusion or something like that. But they're completely asymptomatic and so then it's like okay well this is kind of giving credence to maybe it's not just the physiology but then at the same time you mentioned that that's a static image you know and that doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in the physiology and how loads being uh, concentrated during actual movement and i think that does really clarify a lot of the points that you're making
1: Well, carry on there, uh, Daniel. I'm going to pull out another uh, model here. By the way, uh, this is BackFit Pro HQ, and I have about uh, 30 of these models. All are very biofidelic, specific uh, models of uh, individuals' pains. people comment on MRIs and they don't have expertise on MRIs I wish they would work with radiologists and really learn about what the MRI is all about and the nature of the injury so if we take a disc bulge and the disc bulges have a whole variety of subcategories but let's take this subcategory where we have an open fissure through the collagen that comes from stress strain reversals of loaded flexion extension cycles in the disc. Some people say that doesn't matter. Well I've measured how the collagen layers that form the disc, it's not a ball and socket joint, these are collagen fibers, in fact it's actually a fabric. Uh, If I wanted to delaminate the fibers in my shirt, I create stress strain reversals back and forth and the fibers will slowly delaminate people unknowingly do this to their discs and because the fabric the collagen fibers forming the layers contain a pressurized gel so when you lift awkwardly with poor technique or you lift heavy it creates tremendous hydraulic pressure in that gel that will seek where the delaminations occur. Well, if people bend forward over and over again under load, they create a delamination and it looks like this. So you can see that little red mark uh, right uh, there in the back of the annulus. Now I'm going to bend forward and flex and squeeze and pressurize. You see the delaminations opening up and the gel hydraulically being pushed posteriorly that's because they're in a flexion posture now let's stack their spine nice and tall watch the delamination I'm just going to pull this nerve root out of the way now I'm going to stack them tall I'm going to squeeze the spine notice the whole disc deforms and squeezes but hydraulically nothing is driven posteriorly it only is driven posteriorly as the wedge of the disc is wedged forward so that is pure hydraulics now If the, you know, I I have a colleague who's a radiologist and he has an open fissure like that, very common, he's got one in his neck and he does this for his neck for 10 minutes, he says, Stu, watch this. He goes in the MRI and he's got this great big disc bulge. He says, Stu, watch this. He does this for 10 minutes, we redo the MRI and it's gone. So disc bulges change shapes very quickly. Um, I can take someone who has an open fissure disc bulge, lay them on their tummy, do a little maneuver, and vacuum in the disc bulge very, very quickly if you know how to do it. And, and we learned how to do that doing it on cadaver spines. <laughs> but the point is, until you've done that work, uh, I don't know why people would comment on MRs and their ability to either show or not show these specific uh, mechanisms. So if you understand the power of an MRI, tell the person to sit in their posture of pain for 10 minutes, then take the MRI. You'll get a very different story than if they just uh, walked in because walking doesn't cause their stress concentration that causes the disc to simultaneously bulge. But sitting in front of the computer for half an hour sure does. Good why don't you do that before you go in front of the MR? (laughs) So, you know, it's a tool that can be very valuable if you know how to use it, or it can be abused uh, as well.
0: I I definitely am surprised to hear that you would see such significant changes in the structure um, just by doing something like that for, you know, a handful of minutes. Like, Uh, To me, that's pretty easy. Well, it's not on
1: everybody, but if they have a really open fissure and they report those symptoms that change whether they're sitting or standing, there's a good chance you'll see that, sure.
0: Yeah, no, I guess that's just really surprising to me. It's really interesting because I I would never have uh, thought of that, but, I mean, it kind of makes sense intuitively now that you say it, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Um, So... I guess coming back to what you mentioned about loading spine whether it's in flexion or more of like a neutral and rigid position um, one of the things that I've always kind of been curious on as well is like there are certain instances where someone has back pain and then they go through a flexion kind of extension mechanic let's say like a Jefferson curl or something to that effect and that helps them feel a little bit better and then in other instances that sort of movement can really exacerbate things so i was wondering if you'd be able to sort of differentiate between the two or or just maybe highlight like why one might be experiencing this and the other not kind of like you mentioned in the beginning of pain presentation
1: yeah great well i i see daniel you appreciate context and there's not a single answer it's very context specific so my understanding of the jefferson curl is it came from the world of gymnastics where Uh, people need very flexible spines to do the gymnastic maneuvers which basically control and manipulate body weight so uh, if you are uh, doing a gymnastics routine involving the Jefferson curl you're not doing it under heavy load. Um, it, It might be quite fine. The other feature of gymnasts is as a rule they're not heavily boned skeletons they tend to be on the uh, lighter, finer uh, side of the spectrum. Um, When we took thicker spines the stress concentrations were much larger doing something like a Jefferson curl than someone with a thin spine and I can just use an example of take a thin willow branch, you can bend it back and forth with very very little stress but now if you took a thicker branch and bent it once it would shatter because the stress concentrations in a thicker diameter tube uh, is much greater so that's why heavily boned people probably won't do very well uh, training a Jefferson curl now there's nuances within nuances when we uh, implanted different muscles with fine wire electrodes Um, If you look at the muscle of multifidus, for example, you can get regional activation of one multifidus at a time up and down the spine by doing a Jefferson curl. So if you want to activate very finely uh, the very small muscles of the erector spinae, that would be a, a, a good way to do it. And if you go to the scoliosis schools of Europe, They quite often put someone over a bench, cantilevered, so just the thorax is over, and they'll do little, very small flexion cycles. Then they'll move them out over the bench a little bit further and do little motions. In other words, it's a very clever controlled technique to optimize the activation of the small stabilizers, like what a Jefferson curl could do but it's in a much more controlled and I would argue wise therapeutic way. So these are all arguments for flexion movement and correcting and and helping uh, these uh, certain situations but when I see uh, people who lift heavy arguing for uh, a Jefferson curl I would then say if I were to examine them we're probably measuring a stretch reflex in the muscles which will give them 15 minutes maybe 30 minutes of temporary analgesia so it's, it's a false sign uh, in terms of creating resilience for someone who wants to lift heavy so these are all fabulous uh, discussion points um, but um, generally speaking if you're a power lifter there are much wiser ways to uh, challenge those muscles. And I will also say in terms of the hierarchy of risk, a neutral spine, or at least as close to neutral, uh, well-braced is probably in the best posture to withstand uh, very heavy loads. And I mean, you know the people I work with, uh, some of the top power lifters in the world and record setters, Uh, put 1200 pounds on your back and then allow yourself to round out a you're going to get crushed because there's no way you can correct that all you have are your hips uh, and and knees at that point um uh but you know the the second best is if you are going to flex your spine say your torso length to leg length to femur length ratios are a little bit um, atypical and you get more leverage with a little bit of thoracic rounding, fair enough. Don't move your back. In other words, um, use the hips at that point as the primary mover, even though the spine might be a little bit flexed. That will also uh, enhance resilience for a heavy lift but I, I cannot make the argument or see too many people who survive, with one exception, uh, taking the spine through a full range of motion under very heavy load. And the exception, of course, is Konstantin Konstantinov, who uh, everyone used as the example when he did the dive, as it's called, uh, and, and pulled the bar. But uh, you wouldn't want to have been him in the last stages of his career given uh, his spine. So even someone who was simply touched by the hand of God, you and I were not, I can tell you that. Uh, It wouldn't work for us, we wouldn't survive very long, but he did, but uh, not in the end. So, you know, you you can, uh, (laughs) I I, I know that the uh, young people once in a while will want to have a go at me on uh, social media and they'll say, oh yeah, butt wink is okay. I can go, um, you know, pardon the uh, language, but ass to grass on on a deep squat. And then uh, I'll say, uh, but you're coming to see me with back pain. Oh, yeah, but, you know, uh, butt winks, okay. And I said, fine, fair enough. Let's take an Olympic bar. Uh, It's uh, 45 pounds for you Americans or 20 kilo for the rest of the world. (laughs) And uh, what I want you to do is simply do... A pelvic tilt flex and extend do that ten times just under the weight of an olympic bar did that cause your pain around six reps you can see the expression on their face change a little bit as the pain starts to creep in by the tenth rep they're very well uh, educated that butt wink is not for them
0: <laughs> yeah <clears throat> Yeah, no, so, let's, you, let's,
1: you see, me... we have an experimental foundation for for, for pretty mm-hmm. much everything, and I, I'm not absolute really on anything. What I am absolute on is that the person gets a thorough assessment so that you can understand their specific uh, pain mechanism so that you can give them a, a really savvy strategy to mm-hmm. uh, proceed.
0: No, that definitely makes sense. And so... Like, let's say you are working with a healthier lifter, someone who doesn't necessarily have any specific injuries, but they're just trying to stay as resilient as possible and resistant to injury as possible. What are some general guidelines that you might suggest, whether it be from, you know, avoiding this or maybe dedicating a little bit more time to developing, let's say, stiffness or other things? Like, what, what does that look like for you? Obviously, it's going to be individual, but just as like a general rule from powerlifting of what you've kind of noticed that a lot of powerlifters tend to lack.
1: Okay, I I understand the context, Daniel, and and you want a very generic uh, list. I'm going to start with the concept of what we call the tipping point. So consider a teeter-totter where you have the tolerance of a system. Uh, let's 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 take a nutritional system and let's take vitamin D if a person is vitamin D deficient they're sick they're not performing very well so you add a supplement Uh, they start to perform better but there's a tipping point if you add even more vitamin D it now turns into a poison so you've crossed the tipping point what was anabolic on one side suddenly turned catabolic Well, every single system in your body follows this law of balance, stimulation, adaptation, etc. But it's controlled by a tipping point. So now let's uh, talk load and the power lifter. Uh, What the goal of a power lifter is, if they're competitive and they want to increase their load, it's to extend their tipping point. That's what they're trying to do to bear more load and keep the load on the healthy side of the teeter-totter. doesn't matter. Everybody has a tipping point uh, that if they cross it, they'll become injured or they will create micro-fracturing or whatever the case may be. So uh, now we have to talk adaptation because you're trying to move the tipping point. A bodybuilder is adapting muscle they're trying to create larger muscles so they train three times a week a day in between they fuel and rest and and this kind of thing that's not good for a power lifter Uh, and this is where some power lifters get into trouble where bodybuilders transform into a strength uh, athlete and then I'm seeing them for end plate fractures in a a year or so Um, bone doesn't adapt like muscle there's about a five-day turnover to muscle so when a power lifter does a very heavy deadlift session on Monday and then they do it again on Wednesday and then they do it again on Friday in other words a bodybuilding schedule if you measure as we have done many times uh, we might use micro CT and measure the micro fracturing of the trabecular bone under the end plate that is very heavily stressed that's where the stress concentration is in a neutral spine very heavy deadlift let's say uh, those microfractures will scaffold in new bone to form a bony callus over the next five days if you train within two days the free ions that were bound chemically of magnesium and calcium, the things that build bone, they will break off if you train within two days, but they scaffold in to form the callus after four or five days. So when you look at the grand old men of strongman powerlifting, uh, I'm thinking of Ed Cohn and, and uh, so many people like that, the kids think they're under-trained what, they only do heavy deadlift sessions once every five days or once a week I say yep because they're building and scaffolding bones so if you take them to an MR machine or better yet to just an x-ray the radiologist will say oh they've got sclerotic end plates as if they're pathological no that's what the heavy athlete developed over 20 years was sclerotic end plates because of the micro fractures were always calloused so the microfracturing for them was a good thing but the bodybuilder would build the microfracture add to it wednesday add to it friday do that for 2 or 3 months and then now they've got a full blown stress fracture which is a broken trabeculae (laughs) and uh, that will lead to an end plate fracture and then they get a disc bulge and it starts off a cascade that that uh, really changes the mechanics of their back so there might be uh, an example of managing the tipping point and that is universal for all strength athletes so that would be number one it's quite a principle and it's a real art and science to manage it in uh, everybody. Um, Better form when you're lifting. See, when you're not doing uh, heavy loads, maybe form doesn't matter so much, but I'm going to create that as a counterpoint in just a minute. Maybe it doesn't matter so much. Let's go along with that supposition for the moment, but the more load you add, and if you're a power lifter, you're trying to get numbers so you cannot justify getting bigger numbers by by creating more stress concentrations through poor form so you've got to keep good form I don't know of a competitive lifter or clinician who has helped rehab dozens of them would argue that posture good posture isn't essential for managing the uh, the tipping point Um, so now we've talked about goals Uh, If you don't have uh, the goal of increasing your numbers, uh, it's quite a different uh, conversation. What's your prior injury history? That really matters as well. And do you know of a world-class athlete who isn't managing some kind of injury? They're all managing something. So, you know, the strategies of how they do that is variable depending on the particular type of uh, back injury that they have. But anyway, there's a little bit of a start. Uh, It's a very philosophical conversation on what is universal uh, and really matters to increase your chance of having a successful career in terms of resilience and performance.
0: No, I think that's a really great explanation, actually, because it it does fit in pretty well with, I think, what a lot of coaches – would prescribe from like a higher level athlete so like very frequently i'll use this the same uh, strategy where i'll have alternating um loading weeks so i'll have like heavy deadlift one week then i'll wait the next week i'll have heavy squat and bench and then i kind of will alternate it that way to give them enough time to actually recover and so they can actually continue to peak and perform instead of just peaking everything kind of simultaneously or else you just sort of get beat up after like four weeks so that, that definitely makes sense from like a fatigue recovery and adaptation standpoint. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned posture a handful of times and that's something that I think first lacks a little bit of operationalization because when you say posture and I say posture, we might be thinking of two very different things. And I think the discussion around posture and the uh, significance of posture relative to, maintaining just general health or, or injury risk uh, reduction and things like that is is often misunderstood or oftentimes there'll be conversations where people are just sort of talking past each other. And so I was wondering if you could create a little bit of context around what you mean by posture, when it's relevant, when it's not, and then also um, how it pertains to you know injury risk reduction.
1: Okay, well, that's there's a lot of science behind uh, I'm I'm wondering where I should uh, uh, start on this well well maybe let's start with a definition what is poor posture and it is so context specific I again would have people I'll, I'll put on a seminar somewhere and they'll say oh but professor I read that posture doesn't matter and I said good take this pound of butter there's the pound of butter hold that in your arm like this and hold that for the next hour which they will do after about 20 minutes I see they put it down and they give up and I said what's wrong with you and they say well my arm is aching and I said yes posture matters doesn't it so an awkward posture is holding a limb against gravity you will see someone at the computer sitting like this when you measure the back muscles contracting, the, they might be about 10% of maximum contraction because of that posture. Then measure the oxygenation within that muscle. And we do that with, with NEARS, near-infrared near spectroscopy. And it will show that the muscle is now aching because of acidosis. And uh, now it, they don't really ache because of lack of oxygen. They ache because of acid, uh Now, at a 10% contraction level, the capillary bed in the muscle gets clamped down because of that isometric uh, imploding pressure of the muscle. If they can simply take a micro break and reperfuse the muscle, uh, they can uh, reduce the muscular ache. So there is a muscular uh, ache uh, issue but some people are in that posture all day long so if we could teach them to do a micro break uh, they would reduce the pain associated with that awkward uh, posture. Um, I think it came from some our people would argue well the sitting studies show that there's no real ideal posture. No kidding! Um, let me start laying in bed. If you lay in bed and don't change your posture, you will get discomfort. And if you ignore the discomfort and you don't change posture, that discomfort turns to pain. And if you ignore the pain and you don't change your posture, you will become injured and it's called a bed sore, an open wound as the tissues break down. Because the load has a magnitude component, it has a duration component, which I just described, And it has a frequency, repetition component, all mitigated by rest. So you can mitigate long duration awkward postures by a posture change or rest. Frequency, you allow rest schedules and adaptation. And load, you have to manage the tipping point. But posture governs all of these things there are other studies that some people will quote and say well posture doesn't matter and they might quote a study with uh, Pete O'Sullivan who's this physical therapist in uh, Western Australia and Pete reported in a study on uh, children uh, you know some sat slouched with what would be considered poor postures and others uh, didn't and there was no correlation with their back pain but I would uh, argue that let's take smoking And we will take a group of kids, some smoke, some don't, none of them get cancer, so smoking is not related to cigarette smoke. That would be exactly the same conclusion, because the problems arise after a long-duration exposure when we're talking posture. But uh, Pete uh, O'Sullivan also did another study where he subcategorized back pain. So if you do a study on non-specific back pain, it doesn't even meet the criterion of group homogeneity which is required for statistical study. The basic uh, requirement and tenant is that the groups must be homogeneous. So what Pete did he took a group of non-specific back pained people and showed that posture didn't matter. Then he took in, a, in the next study, he subcategorized those people, and he had some move into flexion, and those who were triggered with flexion uh, posture pain, you sit over here. And then there were others who, when they moved into extension, they triggered pain. They move over to there. Now, all of a sudden, he's subcategorized non-specific back pain into specific back pain groups. Very simple posture uh, description if you are flexion triggered flexion posture really matters if you are extension triggered now extension really matters so we can go back to some of these people who say well there's no studies that show that posture matters well I'm saying they're not very thorough or shall I say scholarly in their understanding of the existing literature so there's just a start that so often uh, Uh, cited I suppose in in, among the physical therapy uh, world but if you go into the world of ergonomics where in occupational settings posture has been richly studied for example if you pick up loads from the floor versus from the knee level picking them up off the floor Many times increases your risk of subsequent back pain and disabling back injury. That's posturally driven. We did studies of workers who chromed car bumpers for Chrysler cars a number of years ago when we still had chrome bumpers. (laughs) Hard to find these days. But anyway, um, of those men, who all did exactly the same job so the exposure was similar some of them, about a third every year had disabling back injury sufficient to cause them time off work the other two-thirds didn't. We spent half a day measuring their strength, their, their endurance, their range of motion how they lifted and uh, health profiles, do you smoke, and all sorts of things like this. And we did a factorial analysis to see what was related in the most powerful way. We also did psychosocial inventory on this as well. Do you like your boss? How's your home life? And these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. What mattered the most was how the workers lifted. The ones who had repeated episodes that disabled them from their job Do you think they were stronger or
0: weaker? Oh, actual question. Um, I might suspect stronger because then they're probably doing more total work volume. Exactly. They
1: were stronger because they used their backs. The ones who weren't so back strong used their hips. They didn't bend their backs and lifted with their backs. They lifted actually with their hips. You know, it's this myth that, oh, use your legs to lift. Actually, you use your hips to lift. (laughs) So, um, but uh, the ones who got hurt were more strong, but less endurable. They could do a few lifts, but guess what happened? They broke form. Think of every time you've hurt your back. You did it when you broke form. You compromised your posture. And we Mm -hmm. see this time and time again. So, again, I I can argue uh, around these concepts, uh, but, uh, you know, I'll see a meme on the Internet. Oh, posture doesn't matter. Well, you know, who would consume a meme on something like that without context? But some people do. And, uh, you know, I can have conversations with people like pito sullivan who i really enjoy you know he's a wonderful fellow and we have really interesting conversations about all of these kinds of things but talk to some of the disciples and they're willing to go to war <laughs> it. it's just you know which is basically a beer and peanuts conversation but uh, it's pretty
0: tribal uh, times, that's for sure
1: yeah I, I i well you know i'm an old guy i, I don't understand uh you know we used to have journal club where we would take papers and read them and people would present their views and uh you know i would buy the beer (laughs) anyway is that a little bit of a start for you daniel no
0: that's fantastic i think that provides a lot of context because again you know i've just heard i've literally had conversations or like heard conversations between two people where they were arguing against each other. And then at one point I was like, are you guys talking about this or this? And then they both say that they're talking about different things and it's like, well then you can't even be having this argument because you're not even talking about the same point. Um, but I, I, a couple things actually stuck out to me when you were talking about posture. Um, one was predictive power. I think a lot of the times, like because maybe posture doesn't necessarily have like a specific predictive power, due to, like, the heterogeneity of of potential outcomes, right? Like, some people have an extension trigger, a flexion trigger, a rotational trigger, whatever the heck it might be. Because of that heterogeneity, I think it makes it difficult to have a specific predictive power just ubiquitously. And I think that sometimes individuals hear that and they say, oh, there is no relationship then. Because we can't accurately predict something, that means there isn't a relationship. And it's like, well, no, that doesn't necessarily mean the relationship isn't there it just means that we don't necessarily know how to predict like preemptive or preempt how an individual is going to respond like you were saying because you don't know a lot about their injury history their health their physiology their their you know various psychometrics and things like that and so that was one thing that really stood out to me the other thing actually was um inactivity and and uh Uh, acid buildup, essentially, Um, because I've seen a fair bit of research that shows that if you were to take two individuals, like identical clones, and one were to walk 10,000 steps a day, and the other were to walk 10,000 steps a day, but one were to do it all at once, and one were to do it kind of interspersed throughout the day, the individual who's breaking up sedentary time is actually going to be healthier. And that was a review that came out, I believe, a year ago. And it's not too surprising to me anyways, that decreasing total time spent sedentary, like uh, specific chunks, decreasing the the time actually has a pretty positive correlation with increased health span. And just when you were talking about inactivity, uh, you know, increasing um, or sorry, decreasing that capillary restriction and, and stuff like that, increasing like nutrients and flushing up some of the, the the potential you know waste products or whatever you might call it. Um, I don't know. I just found that pretty interesting.
1: Well, my interpretation of that science is exactly the same, but I'm not qualified to talk about that. I'm only qualified to talk about spine concerns. And in terms of spine concerns, dosing in intervals sitting is one of the wisest things you can do. And in some people, if they would just not sit so long and for so much, their backs would be better. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. So there's a start, and I know you're... Uh, audience is a powerlifting lifting uh, audience they, they, they believe it or not uh, many of them would have healthier backs by not sitting so long but you know the reality is they have a job they're a computer programmer uh, they have eight hours but please get out of your chair and even just go for a little micro break every uh, 40 minutes or so if you can and you will find your tolerance on the platform uh, increases there was something else I was going to say about that, and now it's completely escaped me, but anyway.
0: <laughs> That's okay. I'm sure it'll come back. Um, so the the one thing that I did want to talk about as well, actually, is because this is something I experienced personally, where <clears throat> I had uh, a pretty serious back injury back in, like, 2018, 2019. I had, like, ruptured three discs, had some, like, sciatic nerve issues, some, like, SI issues, um, and it was it was pretty, pretty crummy. Uh, but I know... You know, how I got injured was I bent over to pick up uh, like a water bottle. And that's something I think is fairly common. Like quite a few people have had an experience like that where they'll be lifting and they feel great. And then they go and they do something. It's just a straw that broke the camel's back. And I think that's something that's a little difficult to understand for a lot of people, myself included. So I was wondering if you could kind of just touch on that and explain maybe why people can lift heavy weights. But then all of a sudden they go to do some sort of innocuous movement, that seems to be something that's, you know, reasonably related to their relative training activities, and they get injured.
1: Yes. Well, I can give you some specific examples where we've had our instrumentation on monitoring a person when they've experienced this. Um, so, uh I'll I'll just give an occupational example. Uh, Years ago, I was consulting for uh, some hydro utilities here and guys were climbing 90 foot poles and they said the safest pole to climb is the 90 footer because you're aware you're a little bit afraid you're on the ball you don't make a mistake a movement mistake it's the 20-foot poles where you get hurt uh, because you get lackadaisical and you start making uh, mistakes and you might fall and that kind of thing and I would say exactly the same thing in terms of lifting so if you're lifting heavy you know we might take a power lifter who uh, wants to lift a thousand pounds say or squat a thousand great I'm gonna put 1100 on their back And just get them to stand there and feel the neurology that it takes to stiffen and command learn how to manipulate the thrust lines not with your back but with the hips leaning tower through the ankles etc in other words you're giving strategies under very high load situations and I think people naturally are quite good at this because of the awareness that's involved we had uh, one fellow who came to me, not, now a very specific patient example, this fellow was in the agricultural business, had a very demanding job, and he came in, and he didn't seem to be in pain. And I said, uh, t- tell me your story. He says, this is Doc, and right away, I knew there was some heavy psychological overlay. He says, Doc, he says, I hear you're different. I have this terrible back pain. And it goes down my leg in fact it feels like someone has taken a glass shard and ripped open my hamstrings I go to the docs and they say they can't find anything wrong with me I ended up at the pain clinic and they just give me narcotics so I'm now on heavy morphine derivatives and then the pain doctor says I'm a pain magnifier it's in my head doc if this pain is in my head it means I'm crazy and I don't deserve to live if you can't help me in two weeks I'm putting an end to it that's what the medical system did to this fellow I said alright uh, can you show me your pain he says what you, you want me to create this this raging ripped open hamstring I said well yes it's the only chance I have to understand the mechanism of your pain I don't believe it's in your head either and so I put my instrumentation on we measured 3d spine motion he had all the sensors measuring his muscles and and how they were activating and that kind of thing and uh, he did the most strangest thing Ryan he stood there and he wound himself around 360 degrees so he went around like this there was no pain nothing like that and when he got to top dead center uh, and then he had the shard of glass ripping open his hamstrings I heard the spine clunk what happened precisely was this he wound himself throughout the range of motion using his muscles remember muscles stabilize they control those micro movements but when he got up to top dead center because he'd stressed the joint around in a circle when he caught to got to top dead center he relaxed and then the spine shifted and trapped the nerve so I, i i laid him on a bench we decompressed his spine we were able to alleviate his symptoms a little bit and i said don't do anything stupid I know what's going on I need to see you in three days but promise me you won't do anything stupid because remember this guy's gonna die of lead poisoning he came back in three days the symptoms had resolved in that time he came back and I said I know what's going on here's what we're going to do push your finger push my fingers out with your belly muscles so i pushed them in hard and i said push them out and i taught him how to flare out his belly laterally and i said now maintain that now let's go through the offense he round wound himself around in the circle and he's coming up to top dead center he's "Ah, ah 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 i said keep the contraction nothing he goes oh i said do it again around he goes what we did was gave him control at a time of a very low demand he only (coughs) experienced these not when he was putting drain tile into farm fields he experienced them because he didn't know his strategy was to completely let it go his strategy was when he picked up a hundred kilo he knew how to do it. But when he put it down, his strategy was to relax and let the eccentric contraction occur with relaxation. Well a good power lifter never does that. A good strong man never does that. They get in good form, they lift the load, they stay under control, they put the load down, keep the control, now the load is gone, let it go, relax. So they do they, the, the, the they didn't know or have a strategy on how to get into load control and then how to get out of it that's what causes so many people to get hurt when they lower so as soon as they come in here and they say well I got hurt when I lowered the kettlebell I said ah and then I get them to do a few tasks and I can see their neurology right away they perform eccentric lengthening contraction by relaxing. That is uh the kiss of death for a power lifter or a strong man or even someone who does heavy work. Anyway, how's that for a little bit of a start on that discussion?
0: No, that definitely makes sense. And uh yeah, I think <laughs> there can definitely be a risk when you're just going up to something and you're like, oh, it's not a big deal, you just kinda rush in. And, uh, and and tweak something. I've definitely seen that happen a lot, even just like on warmups and stuff like that, or back off sets. It's like I think even I've, d- I've done it myself. Don't worry. Yeah, well, I'd <laughs> <think> even even <laughs> anecdotally, right? Like usually people aren't getting hurt on their top set. It's usually on the back off work or accessories that they that they tweak something, you know, because of like potentially because of a lack of focus, but also because like fatigue and muscular endurance kind of start to start to wane a little bit, and then all of a sudden they get out of position, it's like, ah, oh, fuck, I tweaked my adductor, I tweaked my back, I, something like that, and so... Yeah, that, that, they, that. they
1: applied a, a maladaptive motor control, which mm-hmm. comes from fatigue, uh, and they migrated the stress concentration in a vulnerable posture.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. So, for for an individual who, you know, is fairly healthy, whether they've had some injuries in the past, I'm not sure, but for an individual who's fairly healthy, um, are there certain let's say, preparatory ex- exercises or accessory movements that you might recommend to develop better motor control, better rigidity in through kind of the lumbo pelvic complex in general, just so they can kind of integrate some of those movements back into their bigger compound um, heavier loaded movements?:
1: well, The answer is absolutely yes but if you want me to give them to you I would then say I need the individual in front of me and the assessment will show us what those are Uh, I would consider their prior injury history I would consider the movement strategies that they're now showing me and uh, I would look for the weak links in the chain what's caused their past uh, specific injuries and how can we create a robust strategy uh, to avoid them in the future? So that's my generic answer. Um, I wrote a book for not, uh, you know, my first books were medical textbooks for clinicians. I, I never thought in a million years I'd write for lay people, but I wrote a book called Back Mechanic, which was for the lay public who have back pain. Most of them not all but the vast majority of them do better by doing stabilizing exercises for the core and mobilizing exercises for the ball and socket joints and it's no coincidence the core has a ball and socket at either end your shoulders and your hips so i i guide them through very joint conserving non-pain triggering, non-stress concentration creating exercises and for the core it starts with what we call the big three the, this, the bird dog, the side plank and the curl up uh, believe it or not that's pretty much non-negotiable for every power lifter as well and I know there's power lifters who will argue they say well I squat 800 pounds I don't need to do the bird dog and yet when they come and see me with back pain they say oh I, uh, I didn't realize <laughs> that uh, that would precondition my neurology to create the control that we need in the core, free the ball and socket joints to move as they do. As you know, we have 10-second contractions, uh, uh, etc. And I think you can talk to... The greats, you know, whether it's uh, Brian Carroll or Ed Cohn or Andy Bolton or, you know, I can go through probably 20 top powerlifters who, who now uh, really understand. Uh, and, you know, uh, I can name top top combat athletes, uh, top sprinters in the Olympics, uh, all who have found the benefits of that basic uh, preparatory mm-hmm. movement form. Uh, you, you can, there's a number of NFL football teams that start every on-field practice and weight room training session doing that. You can imagine running and then you plant the left leg and you turn and cut very quickly. That forms a hammer and the hammer has to push a stone if it pushes rope and then they cut and that occurs a it's an energy leak for performance you're pushing rope instead of a stone and b it's creating a stress concentration so they say you know i only tweak my back when i do a hundred percent effort cut foot placement and change direction on the gridiron Did I get off topic on that one, Daniel?
0: No, no, not at all. No, that oh. definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see, I guess, a lot of that stuff because I've definitely noticed that my own perspective on, on a lot of these things has changed over time. You know, as I've experienced different injuries, as I've taken athletes uh, through different injuries, worked with different clinicians, um, you know, for, like, with my athletes as well, Uh, Because I I coach a lot of coaches, I'd say probably like 65-70% of my client roster are coaches and like competitive athletes at like the national level and up. And one thing that I've definitely noticed is a lot of them come to me with some sort of movement dysfunction, like major shoulder restriction, they don't have good uh, overhead mobility, zero internal rotation at the hips like just some pretty significant issues for people who are squatting and deadlifting and bench pressing as much as they are. And so <clears throat> in those instances, you know, like I guess just relating it back to the necessity of some of the movements that you're that you're talking about, these people are still training, they're still getting stronger, but they're also always in pain. And they also always have to adjust their training because they're like, ah, I couldn't do bench because my, my you know shoulder was all messed up today, so I had to switch to some dumbbell incline press or something like that. And it's like, okay, well, sure, you're still making progress. Sure, you don't need all these things to continue training, but, like, shouldn't we probably deal with it, <laughs> you know? And so it's sometimes a difficult conversation to have with, with your athletes, but I'm very fortunate that I have a very good – like, I, I tend to take a – or try to take a similar approach as you where – I really focus on the relationship that I have with the client that I'm working with, so there's that trust. So if I say something that maybe sounds very counterintuitive to them, there's enough trust built there that they're like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna give it a shot. Maybe I don't believe you, but I'm gonna give it a shot. And I've had to scale a lot of their workloads back and say, hey, we're not gonna focus on getting stronger right now, we're gonna focus on you know movement competency. And as we improve your your capacity for sustaining stiffness and rigidity in all these different planes of motion, then we can start incorporating some of this stuff back, and then all of a sudden, you know, we go back to their lifting, and all of a sudden, their lifting just freaking takes off, right? As opposed to trying to tackle everything at once, and it's like you're kind of making progress, but kind of not. Um, and so, so I definitely understand where you're coming, like where you're coming from in terms of like uh, developing a couple of those core fundamentals for for each individual, and like, hey, this is what you need to be doing, and keep, you know, dipping back into that well, in order to just stay healthy continue moving and performing at a high level and doing the best job you can anyways to reduce your risk of injury over time, right? So, so I, I really like that perspective on things. Um, so we're just about uh, about an hour and 15 minutes into almost into the chat, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I was wondering if there's anything that, uh, if, if you had any conferences or workshops, or I know you have a handful of books, I've read a couple of them, are fantastic, uh, that you wanted to sort of pitch or anything like that?
1: <laughs> pitch.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm laughing at that. talk about well, but I think You're all phenomenal resources, essentially, which is why I want to give people the opportunity to actually get exposed to some of the work that you've done.
1: Right. Well, we have a website, backfitpro.com, just as it sounds, backfitpro.com, and there's two portals of entry. If you're a clinician, you can enter that portal, and we show you uh, some of the courses and uh, resources that we have available and some of the more uh, higher-level coaching and medical sorts of uh, books. Uh, And then the other portal is you're a person with back pain. Uh, whether you're lay public or or athletic and uh we then uh give you the uh uh some some support materials plus general approaches you know take yourself through a self-assessment And uh, it's probably better than the assessment you'll get from your family doctor (laughs) to show you what activities, what basic motions, what basic postures, what basic loads trigger your pain, together with some strategies on working around them. We might call them movement hacks or movement tools. Uh, And then my book, uh, Back Mechanic for the Lay Public, which uh, sells quite a few numbers, Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, And uh, it then shows you how to wind down your pain, which as you have just pointed out in your previous statement, is very important to create a capacity for challenging the system to get better. Uh, But it won't take you to the Olympics. It's only designed to get you out of pain. And then if you want to enhance your athleticism, uh, the next book would be Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. And particularly if you're a strength athlete, I, I wrote a, bo- a book with uh, your friend and mine, Brian Carroll, and uh, it uh, was uh, twofold in purpose. It was the story of Brian recovering from quite a horrific back injury to then set the all-time world record. Squat record of 1,306 pounds, and and how he did that. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a story. It's a, a very inspirational story, but a little bit of the science uh, as well of how he did it. But anyway, there's if you want me to plug something, that's uh, <laughs> um, how we uh, do that. There's there's also uh clinicians around the world who've been certified in uh, the process of what we do and there's some master clinicians as well of which I've spent a lot of time with them uh, and they know how to read radiology reports they understand neurodynamics pain pathways how to coach how to design programs uh, and that kind of thing so uh, there's a an answer to that.
0: Awesome. <laughs> And so I know you mentioned a handful of places where people can find you. So the website, uh, sorry, the two websites, and then also some of the uh, the books that you mentioned. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes. If someone wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way that they could reach you?
1: <coughs> well. Uh, I believe my email and my phone number is on the website.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, it's on the website. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more so, I guess, meant through like social media or if you engage in social media.
1: Well, or- I I don't have time. I, I don't know how people find time to do to – do, uh, I don't see how you can see patients and do social media. I don't quite understand that. I, I don't have time. I have someone who does do that. And the only stipulation I have is it has to have information content. There's no clickbait or anything like that. And we have an Instagram uh, at Backfit Pro. I believe there's a Facebook at uh, uh, Backfit Pro uh, as well. But um, uh, awesome. The, 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 I, I, but I, I don't have time to respond to individual questions. No, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, there are some days, Daniel. I wake up to. 200 requests from around the world to see uh, people who are really uh, suffering.
0: That's wild.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously
0: uh, it means that uh, the work you're doing is having a pretty profound impact.
1: Well, that's our our business model isn't social media. It's if you can change the life of one person Mm -hmm. when they've failed a dozen previous attempts, then you know, they'll tell 10 teammates or,
0: right, exactly.
1: Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's uh, sort of how it works. And, and the other thing I should say is, you know, we're not trying to compete with anybody. Uh, Please go see your physical therapist, your chiropractor, or your coach or whoever, you know, your savvy uh, person is who's uh, guiding you. And I hope you get better. Um, But if you don't, those are the uh, people mm-hmm. who uh, we end up seeing.
0: Awesome! So all this stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. I'm going to link up the websites, the BackFit Pro Instagram, uh, and then all the books. So Back Mechanic, Ultimate Ultimate Pain Performance. Sorry, Ultimate Back, ultimate back Fitness and Performance. Fitness and Performance. Sorry, and then the Gift of Injury. Uh, which is the one you did with Brian, uh, Brian Carroll as well?
1: Right. Uh, I wrote a medical textbook mm-hmm. that is very heavy on references and lots of charts and diagrams and things like that. It's a hard read, but uh, it really is the full treatise on the science uh, underpinning decision making, and it's called Low Back Disorders. Awesome.
0: So again, all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Make sure you follow their Instagram account. Make sure you check out the website. There's lots of great stuff that uh, that, that uh, Stewart has done over the many, many years he's, uh, you know, had had a practice. Uh, so again, Stuart, thank you so much for jumping on. It was an absolute pre- pleasure to actually chat with you in person. Uh, I definitely learned a lot of things. I took a ton of notes, and so there's l- stuff that I'm going to be looking into a lot more. And I'm gonna, because I haven't read uh, Ultimate Back. Um, uh, the, I haven't read that one yet so I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick that up myself as well
1: <laughs> well I, I, I'd be pleased to send one to you Daniel so if you could email me your mailing address I'll send one to you that would be my pleasure
0: oh thanks I really appreciate that I always like supporting people though so like I'm more than happy to pay for it but I really appreciate the offer <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah it was awesome to have you here and I'll, um, I'll let you know once the episode is out uh, as well
1: Daniel, thank you so much for all that you do and your support as well.